Hello, I am your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, episode 49, brought to you by acmescience.com. I am joined on today's episode by freelance mathematics and science writer Dana McKenzie. We talk about stealth mathematics, the generalism that he has been allowed by being a journalist, and why using equations in your articles and books may not be such a bad thing. Here we go. Hello and welcome to Strongly Connected Components. I am your host, Samuel Hansen, and joining me on today's program is the recipient of the 2012 Joint Policy Board for Mathematics Communication Award and author of many articles and books, Dana McKenzie. Dana McKenzie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Samuel. I'm glad to meet you. I'm glad to be on the show. Oh, we are we are very happy uh, to have you on. Now, as I mentioned, you you are now a writer. You are currently a writer. You write science and math articles and books. That's correct. Yeah. But you didn't start out this way. You you have a PhD in mathematics. You taught at universities for for over a decade. So what? That's right. What caused you to decide to make that change from going from being a professor to being a freelance journalist? Well, uh, that's a it's an interesting question. It's certainly a a uh, career change that I was not really expecting to make when I made it. But in in one sense, it's something that I think was almost inevitable. But in another sense, it was something that. Um, sort of took a little bit of a kick in the pants from uh, from fate, sort of, to get me to do it. Um, so uh, the thing is, I'd always wanted to be a writer when I was a kid. I loved to write. You know, I, I wrote, written a diary since I was eight years old. I used to love writing stories. One thing I like to tell people is that when I was in fourth grade, my class had to write reports, like two or three reports during the school year, uh, which were just like, you know, about simple subjects like, you know, Roman civilization or whatever. We were required to write two or three. I wrote 101. <laughs> so I just loved to sit down with the encyclopedia and learn about something new and write about it. You know, it was just the greatest fun for me. So, so I think that that shows that at an early age, I was sort of destined to be a writer, or at least I really wanted to be. But, you know, a funny thing happened, you know, in, uh, in college, I, well, I also always really loved mathematics. And in college, I chose to major in math. It didn't really seem like writing was such a, a great career path. And not only that, I really loved mathematics. Uh, it really struck me that, that mathematics is the subject where you could really get at the truth better than in any other subject, you know, and in uh, in sciences, you always have experiments and you have experimental error and, and you have theories, but you, you just never really have absolute 
100% proof of anything. And in English, for example, which I also took some classes in, it just sort of seemed to me as if you could say anything. And as long as you were clever enough about the way you say, phrased it, you could get an A. And this bothered me, you know. But in mathematics, you really had to get it right or else, you know, you, you could never just sort of, could never fake it. And so that was something that I really, really liked about mathematics. And there are a lot of other things, too. So math was the way I chose to go. And I went to grad school. And as you said, you know, I got a Ph.D., I got a couple of teaching jobs, one at Duke University, one at Kenyon College, and uh, was pretty happy with it, was pretty successful. But then what the sort of kick in the pants came when I did not get tenure at Kenyon College. And I don't know if you or your listeners know about the whole academic tenure system, and, and it may not be really worth discussing at any great length, but... Basically, it's a weird system where either you have a job for life or else you're basically fired and there's no in-between. And so even though I felt I was doing quite well with my job, um, I had to leave after seven years. And so then really made me start thinking about what I wanted to do with my life. And, you know, I'd given 13 years to being a college teacher and I liked it, but I, I wanted to see if there are other things I could do. And what really sort of hit me was when I was doing job search and stuff, I went on the Internet and found out about something called the Science Communication Program at the University of California at Santa Cruz. And this was a program that assumed you had a degree in a science, and it would then teach you the ropes of journalism so that you could become a professional science writer. And I was just astounded to read about this. It's like I could combine my two favorite things in the world, which were writing and mathematics. And so it's like, wow, this is what I want to do. And so I went on that program. It's a year-long program. It was absolutely great. I can tell you all about it if you want. Um, but uh, it basically prepared me to be a professional writer. And that's what I've been doing ever since. And in fact, I've been a writer now longer than I was a professor because I've been a writer for, for 15 years. How did you find the, the differences between uh, the cultures? I mean, was, it, was it a bit of a culture shock when you stopped being in the academic world and started being in the journalistic one? It absolutely was. And I think that I still experience this culture shock to some extent um, all the time when I'm writing. Basically, writing in the academic world is very different from writing for the public. When mathematicians write an article for, for other mathematicians, uh, they'll often start out, define a widget to be blah, 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 and you know, then we'll prove this theorem. But you know, they don't, don't give you any motivation. They, they don't tell you why they're interested in the problem, you know, what the history of the problem is, what it's good for. Basically, they just assume that if, if you can say a problem, then it's interesting and, and somebody will, will be interested in it. And so they don't motivate things at all. And they write in a very sort of technical way, um, definitions, proofs, you know, lemmas and so forth. And it works very well for, for that subject. But if, if you're trying to interest people in mathematics who have no background in mathematics, it's completely opaque and it's, it's not the way to go. So 
you know, so one thing I had to learn was how to write about things in a way that will engage the interest of people who don't know mathematics, who maybe even are scared of mathematics. And, you know, there are various things you, tricks you learn. You know, one thing is, first of all, to write about people. So people always like to read about other people and they like to read stories. And so I don't, you know, journalists don't even talk about writing an article. They talk about writing a story. And because that's what it is. It really is a story. It's got to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's got to have, you know, action and it's got to have people in it. And so, so it's a vast change in mindset to, to think about writing an article about mathematics that way rather than this sort of dry, abstract way that I learned in academia. You write about more than just mathematics. You write about a lot of, lot of other sciences. But on your website, I noticed that you mentioned uh, a, an idea that I, I hope to have you explain here, and that is stealth mathematics. <laughs> yes. I got that phrase from Casey Cole, who is or was, I'm not sure which, um, a long-term science columnist for the Los Angeles Times. One of the species that is, by the way, going extinct. There, there are not very many people writing science columns for newspapers anymore. And uh, I think that's really a, a, a sad thing. But anyhow, Casey Cole was a great science columnist for the, uh, for the New York Times, uh, sorry, Los Angeles Times, my mistake. And I uh, went to talk of hers one time, and she used this term stealth math to describe what she would do in her columns. Um, so she said that a lot of readers are afraid of mathematics. You know, they have had bad experiences with it in, in school, or they think it's boring, or stuff like that. And of course, Casey really loved mathematics, and she thinks it's the most fascinating subject there is. But she recognized that in order to write about math in her column, she would lots of times not say that it was mathematics. Um, she would be writing about something else and then kind of bring the mathematics in, uh, sort of by the back door, so that you didn't really realize you're reading an article about mathematics until you're already into it and, and you're already hooked. Um, you know, and I wish I could, could give you a, a real nice example off the top of my head, but I'd, I'd have to think about it. Well, but I guess, I, anyway, I do, do this sort of thing all the time. Let me just give you an example of, you know, sorry, the article that's right on the top of my head, an article I'm working on right now. It's for a magazine called Science News for Kids. And so one thing, by the way, I got to think about with this article is how do I write for children, you know, because that's even a different challenge from writing for the general public. Um, but anyway, the, uh, the article I was commissioned to write is about cool jobs. And the editor wanted, uh, wanted me to talk with three mathematicians or people, you know, with mathematical training who do cool jobs that would be interesting to kids. And so, um, so I thought about people I knew, and I came up with three that I really like. I could tell you about them. One is uh, one is a guy who does does visual effects for DreamWorks. Um, so basically, he's a guy who figures out when a building is supposed to fall down on screen. Uh, how do you make it look like? An, and you're doing a computer animation. You know, you're not you're not doing an actual. You're not actually blowing up a building. You're doing it on a computer. How do you make it look realistic? You know, how does it look like when a when a building collapses? And so he's the guy who has to work out the mathematics of how this how this happens. 
And so uh, in writing my article, I'm actually introducing the kids to some concepts that, well, you know, he, uh, he uses the equations that describe springs and, and heavy objects. And he, he, he pretends the building is a bunch of Lego blocks that are held together by springs. And he puts in equations that describe that system and then lets the computer run them. So in this article, I feel as if I'm exposing the kids to some mathematical concepts, but it's, it's stealth math, you know, because I'm writing about this guy and the cool things he does and the movies that the kids have seen, you know, movies like 2012 and Tron Legacy and his latest was Madagascar 3. And so, you know, so I'm writing about things that the kids know about and like, but at the same time, I'm bringing in the math behind the scenes. So that's a good example, I think, of, of the stealth mathematics. And hopefully the kids will, will say, wow, what this guy does is cool. And then, you know, in the article I mentioned, well, so what does he need to know? What are the skills he needs to have to do this job? And obviously he needs computer programming skills. Um, he also needs communication skills because he's got to explain to the animators how he actually programs the computer to do these calculations and then he's got to explain to the animators you know what does the program do because one thing he told me which i really loved was that the you can use the math to make it look realistic but to make it look spectacular you need the artist and so the two of them have to work together and he has to explain to the artists how to run the program so that they can then go off and do something spectacular with it so anyway, that's the type of thing I do, you know, so I, I like to write about stealth math. But the first part of your question was that I write about other things as well. And in fact, that's something I really enjoyed. And that was, you know, something that I really was turned on to by my, by my year at, uh, at Santa Cruz in the science communication program. You know, I, I think I went into it kind of thinking I was going to be a math writer, but um, they have us write about all sorts of different things, and, and we do internships and so forth. And I really saw how big a world it is out there and how many interesting things are going on in other sciences. And, you know, in, in some ways, I sort of felt as if, as a mathematician, I had been closing my eyes to all the exciting things that go on in other sciences. And... Uh, Academia does that to you, you know. It, it it forces you into little narrow compartments and rewards you for for digging really deep. But the great thing about being a journalist is you can be a generalist and you can learn about all sorts of things. And um, and I I realized I loved that. I realized that when I was in college, I didn't even want to choose a major because I loved all the subjects. And so now I'm back back there again you know i can write about physics i can write about biology i can write about astronomy whatever you know whatever i find interesting and in some ways it's actually better when i write about other subjects because when i write about math i actually assume a little too much you know i i uh, i i might assume that my reader knows a little bit of calculus and while well, most people don't or a nice example i might use the word matrix and i assume that they know i'm the, they know I'm talking about a rectangular array of numbers, but a lot of people don't know that. So if I'm writing about math, I really have to consciously remind myself to, to think about what the reader will understand. Whereas if I'm writing about, say, astronomy, I'm not a specialist in astronomy, so I can, I, I'm, 
already sort of at the reader's level, or maybe just a little bit above it. But so I can ask the questions that the reader would want to ask, you know, the, the simple beginner questions. Whereas in math, I don't always remember to do that. Well, you uh, just answered my next three uh, questions about <laughs> articles. So uh, let's, let's transition. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Strongly Connected Components listener. Are you enjoying this interview? Have you enjoyed any of the 48 previous interviews? Well, now is your chance to support it because acmescience.com is running a Kickstarter so that we can turn Acme Science into a full-time project for the next year. This would mean a new episode of Strongly Connected Components every other week. That's right, 26 brand new interviews with amazing people from the world of mathematics. Not only that, you can get some pledge rewards. You can get the official Acme Scientist pack, which includes a custom calculator and a pocket protector and an ID that lets everyone know that you are an Acme Scientist. You could also get ad time on this or the other shows. And you could become a full sponsor of acmescience.com or you could help produce an extra episode of say relatively prime one of the other shows that acme science brings to you and have input into what that show would be about so please head over to kickstarter search for acme science and give us some money because we really want to make this site even better than it already is Thank you very much. And now let's get back to that interview. Let's transition from uh, articles that, that you write to books, which you also write. In particular, you wrote a book called The Universe in Zero Words, which is literally a book about mathematics equations. That's, that's correct. So how, how, how did you get the chance to write about equations? That seems essentially like the dream of a mathematician. I'm going to get this book and it's just going to be equations. Now I understand that your book is more than that, but it, right. it, it seems like a, it seems like a odd uh, topic to get a book published on. Well, um, so this book did just come out this year, 2012. Um, it was published by Princeton University Press. So I'd like to get their name in there. So yeah, how did I get to write this book? That's actually, um, it's an interesting story because I was actually asked to write it. This was a surprise to me because I'd sort of always thought that the author has to come up with the idea for a book, you know, like uh, did, uh, did Charles Dickens or, you know, people like that you know, wait for someone to come along with an idea? No, they didn't. But um, actually, there are a fair number of books that are that are sort of solicited in this way. And it was actually an, uh, an English firm, which is the co-publisher of the book called Elwyn Street Productions, um, that actually regularly, they, they constantly do books like this. They will come up with the idea and then they look for an expert to, to write the book. Um, and it's a little bit like, say, for example, for Time Life books, where you know you'll have a Time Life book on volcanoes, and you'll have a Time Life book on this and that and the other, and 
you know, so the way they do, you know, they they come up with the idea. They want a book about X, and then they find an expert on X to go write the book. So, um, so it was just that way with this Owen Street production. So they decided they wanted a history of equations, and they went looking for an expert to write it. So, so you're absolutely right that for me, as a as a mathematician turned writer, it was amazing and thrilling to be asked to write a book about equations and in a way it was it was ironic because and i think this is a story i tell on my website when i was um a student in the santa cruz program we actually had one of the great things about this program was we had lots of visiting lecturers who were professional journalists and so this editor for a, a a popular science journal comes to class and i think i was talking with him about writing about mathematics and so forth and he said just don't ever put any equations in your articles he said for every equation you put in an article you will lose half of your audience and so of course if you're a mathematician you can pretty quickly figure out if you put out put in 10 equations there's not going to be much of an audience left (laughs) So I kind of I you know I assumed this guy's a professional journalist so I kind of took his word for it and and you know I've basically always avoided writing putting any equations in my articles um and most of the most of the publications I work for even though they're science publications you know would not want me to put equations in the articles but I always chafed against this sort of requirement and it's it's the way I describe it is that it's like writing about art, like writing about paintings without being allowed to actually put a picture of the painting in your article. And how limiting is that, you know, to to have to say everything in words. And of course, you know, I'm a professional writer. My job is to put things into words so I can do it, but it it it's missing something, you know. There's there's a certain vitality that's that's that that's hard to capture in words. And especially because words are, you know, one huge difference between math and writing is that math is incredibly precise. I mean, every single, every symbol has an exact meaning and you can have an equation with dozens of symbols in them and they all tie together to mean something extremely precise. Whereas in English language, words have different meanings and they're never as precise as they are in mathematics. And you can never expect your reader to hold 50 different words in their mind at one time and, and make a statement as precise as you do in mathematics. So, so, it's, so it's definitely limiting to write about mathematics and not be allowed to use equations. So I was excited to get this opportunity, and I kind of viewed it as, as my challenge to try to explain these you know so basically what the book consists of is 24 great equations in the history of mathematics starting from the beginning of civilization so like the first equation in the book is one plus one equals two it's about as simple as they come and then it goes right up to the modern day uh, the last equation i write about in the book is the black skulls equation which uh, is used on wall street literally thousands or millions of times a day. Um, It's used in uh, pricing uh, what are called derivatives, which are um, contracts to buy or sell stocks at a future date. And this this whole market was made possible by a mathematical formula called the Black Skulls formula. And so that's the last chapter in my book. 
anyway, my objective in, in writing this book was to, first of all, have the equations there, you know, so I'm not hiding them behind, you know, a veil. They're there for the reader to look at, and I try to explain what they mean. But I also want to have the reader understand that there's nothing scary about this, and there's there's nothing also, it, it's not mumbo-jumbo. You know, I think a lot of people who don't know math think of equations as being mumbo-jumbo, you know, just sort of you know, something that you babble to, to make things sound impressive. And of course, nothing could be farther from the truth. In fact, equations are the exact opposite of mumbo-jumbo. Equations are what tell you exactly what's going on. So I'm trying to help help the reader to see this and, and you know, sort of take them through what the equation is saying, but say it in words, you know, and and I also, of course, tell the stories behind the equations, the people who discovered them. For example, in the inst inst instance of the Black Skulls equation, I can talk all about the uh, financial collapse of 2007 and how mathematical models related to the Black Skulls equation, although not exactly that same model, were blamed with causing the financial collapse, the, the crisis. And a couple other good stories I threw in of uh, um, there was another sort of mini collapse in, uh, I think, 1998 or something uh, that I write about and so forth. So, so again, by telling stories, people like stories and people can relate to stories. And then you hang a little math on it and, and you know, maybe they'll remember that, oh, there is this equation that had to do with, with these, these economic events that I can remember. One thing that, that we actually have, have been talking about already when we were emailing back and forth setting up this interview was uh, talking a little bit about uh, the difference between the way both of us deal with uh, science journalism. I, I have this weird hybrid podcast video uh, quasi-empire uh, going on. I say quasi because, you know, empires usually have some sort of financial power, whereas you write articles and, and you write books, which is a much more uh, traditional style. So I was wondering... Uh, if if you had any ideas about what uh, direction, you know, the world of communicating mathematics and science is is going in or how you feel or how you have actually noticed since, since you're in this world, how it is changing. Yeah. So I um, I do feel as if you're what you're doing is in somehow some way it, it is part of the future. And and it's 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 the. Uh, the tip of an iceberg. You you did bring up a, a very good point, which is that not too many people have figured out how to monetize blogs and podcasts and stuff like that. Yeah, and, I'm and I'm trying right now by uh, running my second Kickstarter. The first one went through. This one uh, is not over yet, so I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, well, I I and I I hope it goes great. And I think I really admire you for for what you're doing, and and I think you are building. Uh, a future, you know, and and it's hard to see exactly what that future is going to be like. But I think there's, you know, there's just going to be a lot more of this kind of thing in the future. And one change that I am seeing uh, already is that so many more mathematicians and academic scientists in general um, are enabled to sort of speak for themselves by blogging and. Um, they blog for different audiences. Sometimes they're just blogging for other specialists, 
Uh, others may try to have a broader audience. A few people like Frank Morgan, who you recently interviewed, have blogs that are really intended for the general public. So he has a blog on the Huffington Post. So I think that the whole medium of the internet is making possible direct communication between the practitioners and the public that was never as easily possible before. And of course, there were always visionary people who made it happen. Um, you know, there are people like Carl Sagan, you know, the great astronomer who who had the TV show Cosmos and you know really brought astronomy to a wide public. Um, but they did that with a certain risk. You know, I think that Carl Sagan was always viewed as being just slightly little second class by his colleagues because he sold out. You know, he's writing for the public. He's not, you know, in, he's not writing uh, academic papers and stuff like that. And so he had this prejudice in academia against writing for the public. And um, and I think that that prejudice probably is going to, is going away a little bit because of of the possibility to blog, to blog about your work. And you know, other risks are also that you know the the structure, the, the whole structure of academia was not set up to reward popular writing or popular communication. Um, so you would, if you tried to do it as a junior professor, you would have happened to you what happened to me. You wouldn't get tenure, and then you'd be <laughs> out on on your own. So to some extent, you have to first get tenure. You know, first make your your reputation, and then you can perhaps dive into writing for the public and uh, you have the job security to do so. Um, but that's still, a, even that is though a risky move to, to make for academics. So I think that um, the blogs and podcasts and the internet in general uh, make it possible for academics to do this in a smaller way, to sort of go incrementally to gradually get their work, you know, their work out there instead of really having to take this big plunge of saying, okay, I'm going to write a book, you know, or I'm going to go into TV uh, or something like that, which is a huge risk to take. Um, so I think in the future, we're going to see more of this direct c contact between academics and the public. And so then that raises the question of what will journalists like me do? And I think that It'll be, you know, that'll be a challenge. But I think that there'll always still be room for people on the other side of the coin, you know, journalists who want to reach out to science, scientists, and journalists who can uh, interpret science for the public, um, because scientists are not still are not trained to do that. You know, they're still trained to only write for other scientists. Scientists, And so there are some scientists who are incredibly gifted at writing for the public, but it's sort of like by accident and it's because they care about it, but uh, they're, they're not really trained to. And so I, I think uh, as long as that's the case, there's only going to be a, a handful of scientists who are really good at it. And you're going to need journalists who are also good at coming from the other direction and and reaching out to scientists and interpreting for the public. Oh, uh, Dana McKenzie, thank you so much for coming on to Strongly Connected Components and speaking with me today. I really appreciate it, and uh, I, I think it's a great thing you're doing. That is all the time we have for this episode of Strongly Connected 
components. If you want to know more about Dana McKenzie, head on over to acmescience.com where you will find a blog post about this episode with links to his book, to his website, and also to the Kickstarter project that Acme Science is running so that we can become a full-time podcasting empire over the next year. Please support that. If you want to leave any feedback or suggest a guest that I should interview, please email me at my personal email address, samuel at acmescience.com. The music on this episode was Pie by Hard and Firm. And the music I'm talking over right now is from SP12. You can find over at opsound.org. Starting the Connected Components is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution share-alike license, as always, which means feel free to remix, remaster, reuse, reduce, and recycle all of the audio on this podcast, however you wish, as long as you say that you got it from Acme Science. Once again, remember, Acme Science Kickstarter. Support it, please. It can only lead to good things if you do. So, thank you so much for listening, and I hope that you come back for the next episode of Strongly Connected Components. <laughs>